Hello and welcome friends. Uh, this is our Sutra Studies uh, course and uh, let's begin by taking a moment to appreciate our handsome community gathered here today by resetting our community affirmation. Today I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Welcome back, everybody. It's Saturday night, and it is our Saturday Sutra Studies class. Boy, I think everybody's been looking forward to it. This class is turning out to be great fun and uh, a lot to learn, right? So uh, currently, we are examining the Dhammapada, which is one of the great, great collections of sutras in the, in the uh, Pali tradition. Today, we will be covering chapter 5, entitled The Fool. And before we get started, let's just define here what we talk about when they, when they say fool. So, fool is a translation derivative kind of from the word childish, right? In one of the notes, they talked about a fool is a child who's not, not yet old enough to speak. So... <clears throat> Um, they're talking about a, a fool being childish or immature, one with no sense. Uh, they also talk about the foolish as, or the fool as being an ordinary person who is ignorant to the true Dharma, who doesn't know the teachings of the Buddha. And then, uh, and contrary to that, we have the mature, which is defined as sensible, discerning, and one who knows the sublime truth of the Buddhist teachings. So that's what we, so I would think instead of fool, which sounds kind of a mean thing to say about people, I like to just say immature, because we're all at different levels of maturity. And I think we all have a certain level of immaturity to us. So with that said, let's begin. I'm gonna try not to cough too much during this uh, during this session. And um, okay, so let me share a screen here, and we'll get started. 
Okay, so we are here, and um, we decided, last week we decided that we're switching the uh, uh, the main text to Gideon Schirpel's text, mainly because he organizes them uh, into the place and time that they were shared. And uh, his is the only text that shows which texts, uh, which verses are recited together or they're, they're related to each other. And to me, I thought that was hugely important because many of the verses are taken from drastically different parts of the sutras. So we read the verses and we always think that somehow the last verse uh, pertains to the next one. And the fact is, is in most cases, they don't at all. They just happen to have the same uh, topic. There's something about wisdom or something about foolishness in them. So I thought that was hugely important. I also took the time to number this one. If you remember, we were having problems following them all. So in blue, you can see that I've numbered these to go along with the other ones. And if our, uh, if our instructors are up for it, I would love to see if our instructors could do some reading for us. Um, just because I thought it'd be more fun than just me hogging the screen and doing all the reading. So with that said, uh, Yoli, would you like to start with uh, number 60? Uh, sure. To the sleepless, the night is long. To the weary, <clears throat> the mild is long. To ordinary people who know nothing of the Holy Dhamma, samsara is long. Thank you. I think we'll read through them on the different, that was getting chirpels. Uh, Tom, are you with us? Do you want to read number 60? Darcy, would you like to read number 60? Sure. Um, long is the night to the sleepless, long is the league to the weary. Long is worldly existence to fools who know not the sublime truth. Oh, that's lovely. Neil, do you feel like reading one? You want to read 60 on this one? Yeah, I'll do one. The night is long for one lying awake, seven miles long for one exhausted. Samsara is long for fools ignorant of the true diameter. Oh, thank you. That was lovely. And um, in this chapter, it seems like each chapter, one of the uh, writers seems to do a really great job on it. I like Gil Fransdale's uh, uh, version on this chapter, but that particularly particular verse, I think Buddha Rakita here uh, really, uh, I think, encapsulates it a little bit better. So, you know, so in a sense, they're just talking about for miseries in life, like not being able to sleep, the night feels so long. But here he, he says, long is worldly existence to fools who know not the sublime truth. So, you know, it, 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 pretty much they're saying that those that, are, those that don't know the Buddha's teachings are trapped in samsara and there's no way out and it can be just a long, unsatisfactory existence. Of course, the word dukkha comes in, right? We know this from our teachings on the Four Noble Truths, that 
unenlightened existence is dukkha. And dukkha is translated as is suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And the life is just unsat un unenlightened life is unsatisfactory. And so that's what this points to as well. Thank you. And Yoli, would you like to read 61? Sure. If you cannot find a companion equal to or better than yourself, journey alone. Do not travel with a fool. Oh, that's good advice. And uh, uh, Darsud, 61. Or I could read it. Should a seeker not find a companion who is better or equal, let him resolutely pursue a solitary course. There is no fellowship with the fool. Boy, Buddha Rakita has a nice vocabulary, doesn't he? For not a native speaking, uh, he's a, an Indian studying Sri Lankan Buddhism. Neil, do you want to read 61? Yeah. If while on your bike, you make no one your equal or better. Steadily continue on your way alone. There is no friendship with fools. Oh, that's great. So this is a sentiment that goes way back. There's a lot of quotes that you'll, you'll find and the Buddha constantly talking about this, that, you know, you know being with fools, it just weighs you down. And you, if, if we can't find people that are, that are decent and, and that, that have an eth ethical base like we do, you know, it's just better to be strong and stand, stand on your own and, uh, you know, wait for someone to come along that's a better friend. So that was lovely. And um, we're still working on this class to figure out exactly how we're going to share um, it's hard for me to see everybody on the screen because I'm sharing. So um, if anyone has any comments or questions, you can just go ahead and just uh, yell them out or raise your hand and just feel free. Uh, many of the verses that don't seem like they need much explanation, I'm just going to move through them quickly so we can spend more time on the uh, interesting ones. And Yoli, how about 62? Uh, 62 and 63, please. Okay. The fool busies himself thinking, these are my sons, this, this wealth is mine. But, does, but he does not even belong to himself. So what can be said of sons and wealth? A fool aware of being a fool knows at least that much. But the fool who is proud of his knowledge deserves to be called a fool. Thank you. Darcy, did you make it back? Can you read 61 and 62? Yeah, I thought I had my mic turned on, but I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry, 62 and 63. Sure. Uh, a fool knows his foolishness is wise. A fool who knows his foolishness is Can wise. Can you read the screen? Yeah. 62. Oh, uh, we're here, 62. 62, sorry. Yeah. 62 and 63. Okay. The fool worries, thinking, I have sons, I have wealth. Indeed, when he himself is not his own, whence are the sons, whence is the wealth? 
A fool who knows his foolishness is wise, at least to that extent. But a fool who thinks himself wise is a fool indeed. Lovely. And Neil, how about, how about um, 62 and 63? Is that the right numbers? Yeah. Yeah. A fool suffers thinking, I have children, I have wealth. One's self is not even one's own. How then are children? How then is wealth? A fool conscious of her foolishness is to that extent wise, but a fool who considers himself wise is for one to be called a fool. Oh, thank you, Neil. So 62 is, is the most philosophical, and I think Gil Fransdale really brings out the meaning of this. So first of all, they talk about, I have children, I have wealth. Now, Gil Fransdale makes them sound like they're two separate things, where in the previous uh, uh, presentations, they talked about them being one and the same. And the thought that comes to mind for me is that it's a cultural thing. In India, uh, uh, it's a big thing for to to uh, to have children that will have good jobs and can support you, and uh, in fact, it's so strong in Indian culture that parents demand it. I knew a friend, and uh, he wanted to do something like chase the Dharma or become a become a monk, and his fa his parents just refused it. They said no you're getting a job and you're going to take care of us so we can retire. So in a sense, the children's money is their own. It's a very strong connection. And, um, and you know, and, but it's funny how it's, it's demanded. It's not just, um, I think in the, in the West, we, parents have the idea that they, they don't want to be a burden on the children and they take care of themselves. But in India, it's the opposite. And so, uh, but, I think the philosophical note comes in where we say one's uh, self is not even one's own. So when we're talking about, if you don't even know who you are yourself, you know, what other wealth is there? Now, this is a very deep uh, philosophical point that we could talk about for hours, but um, it doesn't come up anywhere else. So I'm gonna go ahead and move forward. But just to say again, that the idea of that, you know, self-knowledge, knowing who and what you are and, and your true nature and the true nature of reality, this is, which is the greatest of all wells, you know, what other, what other wealth really is there? You know, you feel like you possess your children, but you don't. Children, have their, children are, the, are their own, you know, the wealth comes and goes. Now, the next line, um, a fool conscious of his or her foolishness is, to that extent wise, but a fool who considers themselves wise is one to be called a fool. Um, and this, uh, this reminds me of the, uh, of the Greek quote by Socrates, when he says, you know, uh, you know knowing how little, uh, understanding how little wisdom you have is the beginning of wisdom. When you realize the state where you're at, that's where that's where the path begins. And so here's the same thing, you know. If you're, if and again, we're not talking about being uh, a fool as being an idiot. We're talking about being a fool as being uh, childish or immature. 
uh, one who hasn't developed a, maybe someone who hasn't developed a good education doesn't know the nature of things. And so um, in this extent, um, if, um, if you know where you are, if you know that you don't uh, possess those things, just humility there, and that's a starting point. But the danger is the opposite, you know. It's, it's people that, uh, who are immature and who are childish, but they think that they're on top and they can tell everybody else what to do. So uh, that's a fascinating Again, that's talked about often in the uh, other sutras as well. And uh, Darcy, can you read number uh, 64 and 65, these two? Yep. There was a comment I did want to make on that passage. Um, Please. I don't know who said it, but there's, I heard this, is that there, there's the things that you don't know. There's the things that you know that you don't know. And there's the things that you don't even know that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's so true, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. Realizing, realizing where you are, honestly realizing where you are in any condition, you, whether it's your intelligence or your ethics or your practice, it's an important thing. That's sobering. There's yes. always something to learn. Okay. A fool may associate with the wise for the entire length of his life, but he will never understand the Dharma. Can the little taste the soup? <laughs> a sensible man may meet with the wise for only a moment or two, but he quickly understands the Dharma just as the tongue tastes the soup. That's a great illustration, huh? And we're on 60, 64 and 65. Yoli? I think I got my people mixed up. Yoli was starting. Sorry, Yoli. <laughs> okay. Though all his life a fool associates with a wise man, he no more comprehends the truth than a spoon tastes the flavor of the soup. Though only for a moment a discerning person associates with a wise man, quickly he comprehends <clears throat> the truth, just as the tongue tastes the flavor of the soup. Oh, this one's great, isn't it? Yeah, you feel like reading one? Yeah. Uh, up here it starts. A fool associated with a sage, even for a lifetime, he will no more perceive the dharma than a spoon will perceive the taste of soup. A discerning person who associates with a sage even for a brief moment, he quickly perceives the Dharma as the tongue perceives the taste of soup. Ah, oh, thank you. And again, they, they talk here about the opposite of a fool or an immature person is a discerning person, right? There's a level of sophistication in there. And so the, uh, the analogy is pretty interesting, isn't it? That the spoon, although it can make lots of contact with the soup, Never has the ability to taste the, the soup, does it? Not like the tongue. So the moral of the story, be the tongue, not the soup. <laughs> right? Uh, this reminds me of uh, the story of uh, the, the proud man who, who wants to study from a teacher and he sits down and the teacher's going to 
pour him some tea. And, and this man is very full of himself. He thinks he knows everything. And well, the master starts pouring him tea. And as the tea gets higher and higher in the glass, the master doesn't stop. And soon all the tea starts pouring all over the table. And the man shouts out, what are you doing? You're getting tea everywhere. And, and, uh, and the moral of the story is that, uh, you know, uh, how, can you fill, uh, how can you fill a full glass? That this, this arrogant man who thinks he knows everything, you know, there's no space there to, to take in any, any new thoughts and new dharma. And so the, uh, the idea is that, you know, we need humility as students and we can't think that we know everything. And so uh, that's what that reminded me of. That's an old Zen story. Be the tongue, not the spoon. <laughs> uh, and Yoli, would you like to read number 66? Fools and the wicked are their own worst foes. They perform evil actions that bring forth bitter fruit. Thank you. This first one uh, talks about fools and wicked people being different. The next ones talk about them as the same. Let's, uh, Darcy, number 66, please. Fools of little wit are enemies unto themselves as they move about doing evil deeds, the fruits of which are bitter. Yeah, so here we're talking, they get into the fools tend to be also evildoers. And again, they talk about fools of little wit, right? Really little understanding. And Neil, how about 66? Fools with no sense go about as their own enemies, doing evil deeds that bear bitter fruit. Great. And again, I think Gil Fransdale's uh, uh, presentation of this verse really seems to be the clearest. Um, but I think it's unfair to say that all, all, foods, all fools are evildoers. I could see them being separate, but very similar. I mean, um, a person that does... <clears throat> A person that does evil deeds is foolish because they don't understand cause and effect. They don't understand that they're, they're, they're creating their own suffering. So evildoers are definitely fools, but no, some fools are innocent, right? Immature people, they just don't know any better, but they're still good people. But, um, but it is true that they tend to be their, their own enemies, right? Because they don't understand the nature of, of how things work. They don't realize uh, how karma works that they're, and they, they do many things that, again, bear bitter fruits. <clears throat> I, I see, uh, can I, I see yeah. bear bitter fruit as um, a fool who does evil deeds, doesn't understand that, um, yes, you said the cause and effect, that it does continue to hurt others as well as yourself. I agree. Yeah, and better bitter fruits means the negative results from our actions. So, yeah. Uh, this verse doesn't really mention others, but I agree with you. They, they affect everyone around us. So, yeah, they don't understand cause and effect. They don't understand that their actions, um, the, the ramification of their actions. Thank you, Yoli. And uh, Ayoli, number 67, and 68, you have two to read. Ayoli, number 67, 
Do not perform actions you will later regret. Those actions will ripen into the future pain and sorrow. Perform those actions you will never regret. Actions that will ripen into future joy and delight. How could you argue with that one, huh? <clears throat> I keep getting confused here. Okay, 67 and 68, Darcy. Well done. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ill done is the action of doing which one repents later, and the fruit of which one, weeping, reaps with tears. Well done. Yep. Well done is that action of doing which one repents not later, and the fruit of which one reaps with delight and happiness. Yeah, this one's quite fascinating because it's it's actually defining what they mean by a wrong deed, <clears throat> a wrong action. Neil, would you like to read 67 and 68? <clears throat> no deed is good that one regrets having done, that results in weeping and a <clears throat> tear-streaked face. A deed is good that one doesn't regret having done, that results in joy and delight. Oh, that's, that's lovely. Um, Buddha Rakitas is definitely worth another look, isn't it? Ill done is that action of doing which one rep rep repents later. So he's defining what he means by ill deeds, right? Which, which fruit of which creates weeping and tears. Well done is the actions that, don't, that we don't repent. So uh, that's quite wonderful. Um, and so this reminds me of the, uh, the earliest and probably one of the most comprehensive teachings by the Buddha when he simply says, do no evil, do only good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So that's one of my very favorite quotes. And um, I think in, in so many ways that is the simplest um, explanation of what Dharma is, of what Buddhism is. And I think that that's what these are pointing to. Wonderful. And uh, Yoli, we have one to read here, 69. Until an evil action ripens, the fool may find it sweet as honey. But when the evil comes to fruition, then the fool is certain to suffer. Well done, thank you. What is that, 69? I'll try to keep my eye on these numbers. And Yoli, uh, um, um, Darcy. 69? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So long as an evil deed has not ripened, the fool thinks it's as sweet as honey. But when the evil deed ripens, the fool comes to grief. And Neil 69. As long as evil has not borne fruit, the fool thinks it is like honey. But when evil does bear fruit, then the fool suffers. Thank you. And I'm forgetting, I think, about some instructors that are here, like uh, Tenzin Tinley. My apologies. Without seeing everybody on one screen, I kind of lose, uh, lose track of everything. I'll try to get better at this, but I'd love to. We'll also have some other instructors. And I'm not sure if Tom is still around or not. Um, so 
this is uh, this is wonderful. So what they're saying is that the fool just doesn't understand the ramification of his deeds. Again, he doesn't understand cause and effect. He doesn't doesn't understand karma. So you know, as long as like if he's committing a crime, <clears throat> as long as he's not getting caught, he's really happy, and uh, he's rob, robbing a store. He's not getting. He breaks in there every every evening. And he's not getting caught, and he's happy getting this. But then, you know, he doesn't realize that, well, he's going to get caught sooner or later and go to jail and really suffer. So, uh, Tenzin, uh, Tenzin Tindley, would you like to read one? You have some Can I ask, Can can I ask a question? Sorry. One, sec one second. David? Yeah, can I ask a question? I I, uh, I, I put yeah. it in the chat, but it didn't, uh, it didn't come up well. Yeah, it's just about this this ripening of the of the fruit um I, I don't quite understand that is that based on karma that you know your your um your evil actions will pay you back sometime maybe in a future life or something like that does that mean something if you don't it does yeah it it it's uh it relates to, it it's uh it's related to uh an old description of what karmic is, karma is. Karma they talk about uh, as like karmic seeds. And when you commit an action, little karmic seeds are kind of stored in, and these would be karmic imprints, right? But these little karmic seeds are, are placed there, but you never know what causes and conditions will, will make that karmic seed ripen in the future. And, uh, and the idea is it doesn't have to be another life. It can be in this life as well. So say, um, I can't think of a good analogy, but say you, you, did, you, you did something that you weren't very proud of. Um, uh, well, say something silly. You yelled at somebody who's crossing the street. You stick your head out the window. You stupid jerk. What do you, get out of the road. Blah, blah, blah. And then you go with your friend to lunch and then, Lo and behold, the guy walks through the door, and you know, just by coincidence that he's eating at the same restaurant, he comes over to your table. That might be a, a silly uh, analogy, but that's kind of the idea that um, all of our actions are are uh, the way we feel about our actions is stored within us, and then at some point, cause and conditions come come around and then we we have to deal with what arises from that so that's what they mean by that is that helpful yeah but um does that mean that they they will come automatically or or can you have oh they can come in in all kinds of different ways and i think that's we can have a we can have a secular view of this it's, this doesn't have to be mystical and it just means that actions that you've done you just don't know how they're gonna they're gonna come back to bite wow. you in the butt in the future, and that um, so in in traditional Buddhism they have a whole list of how things come back, and uh, one of them is is like with I remember Lama Zopa had a very traditional uh, view where he he thought you kill someone in this life, well then there's four things that will happen to you in the next life. You get killed yourself, or you have the propensity to kill more people, or you're born in a violent place, or there's another one. And which I always, you know, I, I could never deal with that kind of uh, dogmatic thinking. 
but uh, it gives, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what, the, what they're talking about here. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks. Okay. I hope that was helpful. Yeah. Okay, Tens and Tindley, you want to read 70? 70 and 71, okay. please. 70 and 71. Month after month, the fool plays the ascetic, eating his fruit with the tip of a blade of grass. But he's not worth a fraction of a fraction of those who deliberate on the teachings. <laughs> and an evil deed is like milk. It may not turn sour right away. An evil deed smolders like buried coals that will burn you at a later date. Oh, maybe that one helps David a little bit with that idea of ripening karma. Yeah. <clears throat> and <clears throat> Darcy, would you like to read 70 and 71? Month after month, a fool may eat his food with the tip of a blade of grass, but he is still not worth a 16th part of those who have comprehended the truth. Truly, an evil deed committed does not immediately bear fruit, like milk that does not turn sour all at once, but smoldering, it follows the fool like fire covered by ashes. Yeah, and, and maybe before we read more of these, I should explain to you what they mean by eating food like from a tip of a blade of grass. That sounds like a great diet plan, doesn't it? But that's not what they mean. Um, in, um, in one of the notes, they talk about a blade of grass is a blade of kushu grass. So kushu grass is something that they use in religious ceremonies. Um, kushu grass is a, a really long grass, and they cut it and dry it and use it for bedding. The kushu grass was put underneath the Buddha's seat and bedding uh, to make it more comfortable for him. Uh, but uh, in later Buddhist traditions, they use kushu grass in a lot of ceremonies, including Tibetan Buddhism and the Tantric uh, faith. When you're doing, uh, when you're doing empowerments, you're given kushu grass, you put a little under your bed and you put one strand underneath your pillow. And it's supposed to give you these prophetic dreams. And uh, it never worked for me. I did it dozens of times. I don't know anybody that, that ever said it actually worked. But nevertheless, kushu grass is associated with, with the pious, with the religious. And so when they talk about eating food with the tip of a blade of grass, they're talking about somebody who sees themselves very pious, very high above everybody else. He, they see themselves as very holy, right? But nobody actually eats with a kusho grass. It's uh, interesting. Okay, I thought that would be helpful. Uh, and Yoli, would you like to read 70 and 71? The foolish aesthetic, aesthetic, who month after month is that now? Ascetic. Okay, am I reading the right one? Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, the foolish aesthetic, who month after month eats food with the tip of a great blade of grass, is not worth a fraction of a person who has fathomed the Dharma. Thank you. And the next one, 71. Like fresh milk, evil deeds do not immediately curdle. Rather, like fire covered with ash, they follow the fool's smoldering. So 71, I think we all understand that by now, that um, 
oftentimes the, the, the things that we do that create uh, negative karma, things like that, they, um, they don't result right away. Sometimes the things we do, they take time before they, they come back to us. Uh, but this, this one appears interesting. So we have the, the, uh, the foolish ascetic is, a, is a, uh, a meditator in the woods away from everybody, uh, a solo meditator. So the foolish ascetic, you could just say practitioner, um, who's uh, eating from the tip of grass. They're talking about he's, you know, who, who thinks he's pious, he thinks he's holy, he thinks he's better than others. He's not worth a fraction of a person who's actually contemplated the Dharma, right? And so uh, these are near and dear to my heart because, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've stayed in over 60 monasteries in my, uh, in my travels, and you do run into quite a few pious people who, uh, who think that they're, they're so knowledgeable and so great, and, but they don't ever really put a lot of contemplation in the Dharma. They just repeat what they've been told. And so uh, some, of these are, some of these lines are quite near and dear to my heart. And, so, and, and then throughout this, they talk about this. Someone who isn't really contemplating, isn't authentically putting time into the teachings, and uh, you know that there's no, that they're not worth anything. Okay, we got. Oh, Neil, do you want to read number seventy-two? For as long as a fool despises meaningless knowledge, it will fall back on his head to destroy what goodness he has. Thank you. And we have a clearer version of that uh, of that uh, seventy-two. Uh, coming up. Uh, how about Yoli? You want to read this one? To his own ruin, the fool gains knowledge, for it cleaves his head and destroys his innate goodness. Ah, thank you. Tinley, you want to read 72? All right, 72. Reasoning is harmful to fools. It ruins their good fortune and splits open their heads. So this one's a little hard to kind of get our heads, uh, literally heads around. But let's look at, I think uh, uh, this one is, uh, Buddharakita's is the best. Um, to his own ruin, the fool gains knowledge, for it cleaves his head, which cleaves is the cut in, in two, right? But it destroys his innate goodness. And so for me, what I, what I uh, interpret this is, is that those on the spiritual path who are only interested in gaining knowledge in order to look good and to, to, uh, uh, to be better than others, um, and to put all this emphasis just on that, that this really destroys uh, our, our innate goodness. Uh, our, our, our innate goodness is something you know, even children have. This is a simple thing. And I think SBT is founded so much on the idea of this verse, is that, yes, we need to gain knowledge. The Buddha, the Buddha just didn't have people meditating. He taught. He wanted to gain knowledge. But, to, uh, but we want to gain authentic knowledge. And to, to spend all our time in gaining knowledge, and uh, and debating that and you know that really creates a different type of a mindset 
And I, I truly do believe that it destroys our innate goodness. That's not to say that uh, the, these really knowledgeable people or, or uh, scholars uh, aren't good. I mean, they, they're ethical people, but I think ethics is much different than goodness. Goodness is something that we feel. Goodness is something that um, it's, a, it's a simple thing. And then as the mind gets busy, we really lose sight of that innate goodness. So that verse is near and dear to my heart. Uh, Neil, do you want to read this one? Number 73. Yeah. The four desires, what does not exist. High ranked among monks, to be headman among those in retreat, to be always honored in others' homes. Oh, that sounds like a few people I know. Hey, Darcy, do you want to read this one? 73? Sure. The fool seeks undeserved reputation, precedence among monks, authority over monasteries, <clears throat> and honor among householders. Yeah, that's right. Yoli, 73. Uh, this is 73 and 74. So go ahead and read those. <coughs> warranted status different from fellow monks authority in the monasteries and the homage of from good families let both householders and renunciants believe that i did this let them obey me in every task such are the thoughts of a fool who cultivates desire and pride oh thank you and yeah, there was two verses to that one. So let me, uh, we should have read both of these. Let me uh, read these. So 74, let both the monk and the layman think I am the one in charge of what is to be done and left undone. This is the way the fool thinks, increasing his desire, pride, and self-delusion. And 74 here, let both layman and monk think that it was done by me in every work, great and small, let them follow me, such as the ambition of a fool, thus his desire and pride increase. So these are also near and dear to my heart. If you've ever spent time at a monastery, you learn that monastery management is so different than the wonderful masters who are off practicing in the corners of the monastery. And um, there's something about the, the authority and that mindset. And uh, in the monastery, you have so many monks that are like that, that they're interested in, in the superficial things. They're, inter they're interested in title. They're interested in being important and bossing people around. And oftentimes when they get a position like that, I've seen monks just change overnight. I've seen wonderful, kind monks who once they're elected into a management position just become tyrants. And so um, the monasteries have a, a big problem with this. And of course, this is a fool. This is an immature person. This is a childish person who would desire those things that don't really exist, right? They're superficial things. Title, titles don't really exist. So religious authority, how can anyone have authority over someone else spiritually? 
I've never been able to, to, to get my mind around that, you know. But some people just love it. They want to be in charge. They want to be the teacher. They want to boss everybody else around. They want to be rich and famous. <clears throat> not me, not Tenzin Tarpa. Hey, we got one last to go here. Um, and how about uh, Tenzin Tinley? Would you read this one? Number 75. I really need the path that leads to worldly gain is one thing. The path to nirvana is quite another. Monks who follow the Buddhist teachings clearly understand the difference. So take no pleasure in recognition, but praise detachment. Emaho. Emaho's uh, Tibetan word, the warrior cry, it means like, oh yeah. <laughs> Just like, that, like, yeah. And uh, Yoli, would you like to read number 75? One is the quest for worldly gain, and quite another is the path to Nibbana. Clearly understanding this, let not the monk, the disciple of the Buddha, be carried away by worldly acclaim, but develop detachment instead. Oh, isn't that lovely? Buddha Rakita, it's so brilliant, huh? And how about Darcy, the last one, number 75? The way to material gain is one thing, the path to nirvana another. Knowing this, a monk who is the Buddha's disciple should not delight in being venerated, but cultivate solitude instead. Yeah, like having big titles like Venerable Tenzantarpa. Uh, actually, the, the term venerable for Tenzantarpa is... Uh, a translation for the word Gelong, which is a fully ordained monk. And Gelong means one, one who is worthy of veneration. Uh, but we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be consumed with that or attached to that. But uh, the, when, when uh, we use the term venerable, it's just letting people know that someone's a fully ordained monk, like, PA, like, like doctor for a doctor, PhD. And uh, so that's there to... Uh, to make it easy for people to understand that the monk is a fully ordained and educated and knows how to do what he does. Okay, um, so this is just wonderful. The way to material gain is one thing, but the path to nirvana is another. Boy, it's so true. And material gain, this is also, you know, uh, the kind of gain like uh, being, being a famous teacher or being being a great scholar who knows more than everybody else. Boy, that is not the path to nirvana. And again, that path really, I think the reason why it doesn't lead to nirvana is because it, again, just destroys our innate goodness. And you know, here at SBT, that's the main thing we focus on, that innate goodness, that's, what, what, that's the rocket fuel that gets us to nirvana, that innate goodness, and, and when it's cultivated, the joy that arises from that. That's much more important than the knowledge. But again, it's a balance. You know, we need both. But the knowledge that we gain isn't frivolous knowledge. It's, it's the knowledge that we need to become awakened. And we don't need to debate and, uh, with others and prove that we're more knowledgeable than others. <clears throat> so um, I think that that's absolutely lovely. Okay, that is the end of the verses. Does anybody have any questions, comments, or insights? Can you say more about fruit ripening? Ah, I can. I did. 
<laughs> Would anybody like to share anything? I really liked this uh, chapter. It was quite wonderful, wasn't it? I just thought the fool was kind of a derogatory statement. I think I like the immature because so many people can't help it, right? I'm thinking that if I never stumbled across Buddhist books years ago, I think I'd be <laughs> I'd be one of those immature people, right? So um, I hate to call them fools. Though there are a lot that is quite descriptive of. There are a few fools out there. Did you enjoy it? Was it insightful? I was joking with with someone before, I think it was Darcy, and we we were both saying how, you know, sometimes you read the the verses and you know a certain person and and you wonder, I wonder if they're going to get the meaning of this because there's so much like that. And reading this, I, so many different people came to mind as I'm reading the verses, especially from the monastery. Oh my goodness. You know, Gideon Schuppel, whose text we're studying here, um, he, was, uh, he was quite outspoken about this. He was quite uh, uh, derogatory towards the monasteries. And he talked about that, you know, nothing good has happened in those monasteries. They're all, all the dharmas left up a long time ago. If you want, if you want true Buddhism, you got to go to the caves and find the people practicing. And the, the monasteries are just full of <clears throat> fools of exactly what we talked about today, of people that just want to be important and want to feel like they know something. And, and so uh, this chapter really hits home for me in so many ways. And also really reinforces the work that we're doing. So in one way, it really validates the work that we're doing with SPT, that we're, uh, you know, we're, we're really focused on that innate goodness and we're not, we're not so uh, worried about uh, you know, getting online and showing everybody else what we think. Any thoughts? I, yeah, there are some of these that I come across that I wish some of the people I knew would read it. <laughs> and not, not to rub it in their face, but more or less because I know that they're really not happy. And yeah. if they saw this and did some self-realization, they might think, oh, well, I would be happier if I did this or that, you know? The fool that realizes they're a fool, at least to that extent, is wise. You're exactly right. Yeah, very much so. But my takeaway was that SBT is headed in the right direction. That we don't we don't seem our song is not plagued by people like that. Some of the other groups are, as you all know. You all go on Facebook and you read some of these groups where they're just attacking each other, debating things, and you know, does that really get anybody anywhere? Much better to practice kindness and friendliness, respect others' views, yeah. Okay, if I'm the only one gabbing, then maybe I'll get to my conclusion and we'll finish things up. (laughs) Good. And there's no reason to add any more. Clearly, my presentation is so wonderful that there are no questions, that I'm just, (laughs) they're just perfect, right? Okay. David, are you waving goodbye because of that last comment? I'm not listening to him one more time. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah, just a quick question. This um, um, 
to be important, to be respected, is um, awfully important to me. I'm very, very attached to that. Um, what do you think is the, the, the best antidote for that, that kind of an attachment to your status? This is a great question, and it, it ties into something that our, our Sangha uh, sister Catherine posted in the Dharma group after our last class, and she was talking about how the, <clears throat> the last, last class, it seemed like uh, the, the wisdom shared was very, dogm was very, uh, uh, was very binary. You know, sense pleasure should be stayed away from, and we should move away from uh, the, all these pleasures of the senses. And so we had a nice conversation about this, and <clears throat> I agreed that there's a bit of a dogmatic binary view going on, and it's throughout the early sutras, there's no doubt about it. I don't think that the Buddha actually shared it like that. I think this is the way that people, because of their limited intelligence, actually just perceived it. And, but the idea is that everything in our lives has to be seen as a spectrum. Things are not just one way or the other. The Buddha gave a great teaching on this when he talked about the, the, one of the great problems people have is that we're all caught up in this and that. That whatever it is, that's, that's this and that's that. We, we, we break everything up into the binary, into black and white. We lose the idea of spectrum. So, like in like in this case, uh, when we're talking about you know feeling uh, title or being respected or knowing that we're good at things and worrying about uh, thinking about the way people view us, you know there is a virtuous side and a non-virtuous side to it, right? Attachment, I think, was the was the one me and Catherine were talking about, and there are virtuous, healthy attachments like attachment to your children, attachment to teachers and sangha. <clears throat> I'm deeply attached to all of you. That's not something I'm trying to get rid of. You know, attachment is a, is a huge aspect of love itself, right? And so no matter what, even if it's a virtuous attachment, we're still going to suffer from it. You know, no matter how virtuous your relationship is with your children or your spouse, if something happens to them, of course you're going to suffer more because of it. But guess what? It's worth it, right? So we have virtuous attachments that are worth it, and we have non-virtuous attachments that aren't. So in this case with David, um, David, I feel the same thing as a Buddhist teacher. It's important to me that people, you know, think I'm, uh, I'm authentic. And it's a question of how much. It's a question of what intensity. It's a question of how attached you are to it. Because I, I'm, I'd love to say that, um, that I'm not like that, that I'm some saint who never thinks about it. it but, but it's just not true. I think about it often. I think that I, I hope people think that what I'm teaching, that I'm an intelligent person, that I, I have good ethics, that I'm authentic, I have a good education, I have a good presentation. Of course, I like to be liked. Who doesn't like to be liked? So I'm not in denial of my human qualities. It's a question of how much and how much power does that have over you? You know, when, <clears throat> when it's something that you're so attached to and you grab so much, that's when the neurosis comes in, right? When the littlest comment, <clears throat> 
of somebody who doubts your your title or anything else comes up and you just you're you going to rage against it so that's the first thing you have to determine david is it healthy or is it unhealthy as human beings where we all have that at the end of this class today i'm going to be sharing the eight worldly concerns with the, with everyone and it's going to go into this in better detail but nevertheless i think that this is a human quality um, yes, it leads to problems, but uh, are, the, are those problems, is there, is there something that's worthwhile? You know, that energy uh, allows me to try to be a better teacher and try to be good at what I do. So there, there can be a positive side to it. You yourself have to see if it's healthy or unhealthy and how, how intense and how strongly you're holding on to it. Anil? You've that's got a couple fabulous. of comments in your chat can you read them or do you want me to read them sure i'll read them uh I try to understand no self i appear to be real but empty yeah uh so oh tom yeah tom's been battling this one for a while so again uh you got to remember that the the teaching on no self is a uh uh a wrong translation. Most modern teachers have all moved away from the idea of no self. When the Buddha taught no self, he's really talking about a distinct type of self. To me, it seems clear what the Buddha is talking about is no soul. He's talking about a self that is, that is constant, that when you pass away, it's still going to be there. An essential essence of who and what you are, a substantial thing that is you. And that does not exist. But you have a self. Yourself is your identity. Of course I have a self. I mean, I, you know, we all do. We're all, we all have a self. It's just we don't have a soul. We don't have that idea of what self is. In the early Hindu and Brahmin text, they called that, that thing that in the West now we call soul, that substantial thing that is really us, they, they call that a self in the early text, but to me, it's clearly, they're talking the difference between soul and self. So self is, a, is an identity, an idea that we create, but that's a whole class in itself, Tom. So uh, I can't, can't really get into it more than that. Um, there is no owner, just changing processes. Well, that's a debate. Uh, most uh, Buddhist traditions disagree. They believe there is an owner and is, there is an agent. But you're right, there isn't an owner. There's no possession of anything. They say the only thing that you really possess is your awareness and your karma. We don't possess things. But there, there is an agent. Now, there is one obscure sutra that says there is no agent. There is no, all things are causes. But that's a very obscure thing. All of Buddhism always points to the idea of agent. If there were no agent, there could be no karma. You could improve yourself if there was. If you were, if you were just a, a, a being of dynamic causes, of dynamic cause and effect, which is karma. If that's all it was, and there was no control, you couldn't choose to do so. There would be no virtue. There would be no karma. So Buddhism uh, asserts that there is an agent. Well, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama is very clear about that. There is an agent, there is an agent that possesses karma, there is an agent that, that, that creates the karma. With that said, I don't think anybody really knows.
That's one of the questions that's up in the air. The Buddha refused to answer the question. That was one of the, the 10 questions that the Buddha remained silent on. So I'm not going to give you a distinct answer. I'll just tell you that's what a lot of the different traditions hold. Um, yeah, Alden Watts, because of study on function. Yeah. yeah, Alden Watts comes from the Zen tradition, so they kind of favor that other side more, that emptiness means empty of everything. Uh, but uh, I don't think that that's correct. None of the modern, uh, none of the modern traditions or modern uh, masters would agree with that. So I hope that's helpful. Okay, uh, we're running out of time. I want to get to my closing remarks. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that. That was cool. We should do, well, we're going to do a class on it at some point. It's going to be in our uh, Secular Buddhist Essentials text. Uh, Tom, read Tibetan Buddhist Essentials Volume 2 from our download library. Uh, there's a, uh, a huge, huge chapter on self and what exactly it is from the Tibetan tradition. It's a good presentation. I think it'll be helpful. Okay, so um, anyways, we talked about um, so we defined what the fool was. The fool is a childish, immature uh, being, those with little wit, with no sense, but also just ordinary people who are ignorant to the true dharma of Buddhism. They also called the fools wicked and evildoers, which I don't think is fair. And I can't believe that that's, uh, that's, that could be true. There are many people that have never uh, studied Buddhism, and I don't think they're all wicked or evildoers. Um, then it also describes them as those who are interested in only worldly gains and self-interest, focused on immediate frivolous results. Yeah? Uh, then they define the mature. Now, they don't, they don't define this too much because our next chapter is going to be on the wise, the sage. So we're going to get into that. But they talked about the mature being sensible, discerning, one who knows the sublime truth of the Buddha's teachings. So some of the passages are, are cool, like, it's better, it's better to walk the spiritual path alone than with the immature or insincere practitioner or friends. Uh, and also inauthentic teachers. Um, if, if you find you, uh, you have a teacher that has any of the foolish qualities that are there, that's a teacher that you walk away from. Um, and then uh, again, I mentioned Socrates' uh, statement that the beginning of true wisdom is knowing you know nothing. So again, the beginning of wisdom is knowing you're a fool, is knowing you're immature, right? Uh, so. To realize our own immaturity is the first step in gaining authentic maturity. Um, the immature have trouble absorbing wisdom while the mature assimilate it easily. Uh, the immature who think they know everything, we know those folks. You know what's interesting though, they talk about the fool and they're talking about him being childish and but they also kind of point to the fact that, well, some of these fools are quite knowledgeable, aren't they? Or at least they appear to be. They talk often about these, these fools being filled with frivolous knowledge, but they're not saying that fools are stupid people. They're just saying that, they're, that their knowledge is gained for the wrong reasons and used for the wrong purposes. Uh, and that the immature are focused on immediate results, ignoring the long-term results. 
Um, then they also talked about the, uh, an immature practitioner or teacher, that a, a false or a foolish teacher is falsely pious, hypocritical, holding meaningless knowledge. One who knows the teaching superficially, but doesn't cultivate a deeper understanding. One who is interested in status, being superior, being praised, being famous, holding authority over others, full of desire and pride, proud of their accumulated knowledge, who teaches out of self-interest. I know a few teachers like that. I had a teacher like that. He turned out to be a rotten teacher. Um, meaningless superficial knowledge and the debate of it destroys our innate goodness. To me, that has to be the biggest takeaway. And also, uh, that's, that's a cornerstone to SB2, is that for us, that innate goodness is the, is the most important thing. Now, you combine that with authentic wisdom, and you have awakening. Uh, the path to worldly gain and the path to nirvana are very different things. This is clear to those who clearly understand the Buddhist teachings. Um, so seek no pleasure in fame or fortune and instead cultivate simplicity, humility, and detachment. So now with that said, I wanted to share this. I hope I'm not running too late for some of you. I knew that was going to happen. I have this problem. This one, one second. Okay, one second here. I have a problem with this program. It's always dumping the images. Let's see. Ah, let's see if that works now. Cross our fingers. I have to download a better program. Okay, this is the eight worldly concerns. This is a huge um, thought, teaching in many traditions, and it's quite breathtaking. So let's, let's talk about it. The eight worldly concerns are, represent our misguided samsaric attachments, goals, and motivations, which are abandoned on the Buddhist path. We abandon these worldly preoccupations after recognizing that although these qualities may bring temporary pleasure, they cannot bring ultimate satisfaction. The Buddha taught that the path to liberation lies between these sets of dichotomies. The eight worldly concerns are divided into four pairs of opposites. It's said that any Dharma activity performed with these intentions are not true Dharma. Boy, do you hear the whole verse we just read resonating through all of this? I didn't write this after reading the verse. I wrote this in Tibetan Buddhist Essentials five years ago. It's just amazing how they're just succinct, right? So the dichotomies here, the opposites are attachment to gain, aversion to loss, attachment to praise, aversion to blame, attachment to fame, aversion to insignificance, attachment to pleasure, aversion to pain. Now, can I remind everyone that all things are spectrums. There's a spectrum here. When they're talking about attachment to gain, right? We all feel better when we gain something. When I give a good class and everybody does a chat thing and says, great class, what are your best classes ever? Of course I feel better. I'm not a robot. I'm a human being. It's a question of, 
are we attached to, the, to that? So here we're talking about intensity. These are the extremes of each one of these, right? So the it's the grasping at gain that you must have it and you are devastated if you don't. And then the aversion to loss, not just not liking loss, but to, to, you know, as much as we can to never deal with loss. So these are the extremes of each one of these, because of course we like gain and we don't like loss. Of course we like praise and we don't like blame. Even monks, even the Dalai Lama, I said, I bet would, would agree with that. Of course, we, we would rather have some fame than insignificant. And it's biologically, it's a biological imperative that we like pleasure more than we do pain. But this again is talking about the extremes of, of these, when, when we're, our lives are driven by these, right? Now, can you see how this eight worldly concerns really sums up what we just studied, doesn't it? Right? And so for, for us as Dharma practitioners, we want to have a healthy middle between these. Yes, I like gain and I'd rather not lose, but you know, I can deal with both. They're all, they're right there in the middle. <clears throat> I'll post this on our uh, social media so everybody can uh, put this meme on their phones or that. Does anybody have any questions about this? The eight worldly concerns. Attachment to chocolate, aversion to mushrooms. There's a whole bunch you could do, right? <laughs> and they all make sense. Okay. So I thought that, that that was really cool. Oh, Darcy just got an aha moment with this. Yes. Authentic. Anyways, I thought that that's helpful. Um, I used to, when I was in the monastery and I first learned the eight worldly concerns, it was one of my main practices that I just looked at everything I did through that, through that, uh, through that view, looking at how, you know, where am I with all of those? And it's a very powerful practice, by the way. Okay, so we're running late. Uh, I don't want to keep you guys much longer. Remember that the sutra teachings uh, are meant as practice instructions. So in order to get the greatest benefit, we need to engage fully with them, utilizing the three great objectives, study, contemplation, and meditation. Your work this week is to discover how these teachings apply to your daily life, transforming them from words on a page into living dharma. And I think our meme of the eight worldly dharmas, is, oh, eight worldly concerns, is really going to be helpful. Next week, we're going to move into chapter six of the Dhammapala, the sage, which is going to be fascinating. It's going to pinpoint what the sage is for us. So let's end today's class with our altruistic prayer. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Thanks for joining me, everybody. It was a blast. And I, yeah, it's a very interesting, very, very helpful, huh? We're on our way, everybody. We're all going to the promised land. Karma shining.
<laughs> yes. shining in the sun. <laughs> oh, look at she's collecting seashells today. <laughs> yes, she is. That's a happy SBT practitioner. <laughs> so thanks, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow for our 10-week meditation program class on radiating awareness. Thank you, Tarpa. Thank you. Thanks Tarpa. for the help, Neil. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Tarpa. Bye-bye. Enjoy. Hey, Here's the Atlantic here from our angle. Oh, it looks so good. <laughs> Enjoy. Thank you. Bye-bye.